Welcome to the Racially Just Schools podcast. In this episode, I had the amazing opportunity to speak with Dr. Muhammad Khalifa. Dr. Khalifa is a professor of educational administration at The Ohio State University. During our conversation, we discuss what culturally responsive school leadership is and what makes it different from other forms of school-based leadership. Dr. Khalifa also talked about why it's important to not only be anti-racist, but he invited us into becoming anti-colonial in our education work. We discussed this and so, so much more. I'm very excited for you to hear this conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. So, let's go. You're listening to the Racially Just Schools podcast, the show that provides resources to help you and your team build racially just schools. Now, here's your host, Dr. Terrence L. Green. All right, welcome to the Racially Just Schools podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Terrence Green, and I am super excited about today's episode because we have an amazing person in the building, the one and only Dr. Muhammad Khalifa. How you doing, my brother? I'm doing well. Thank you for the invitation, brother. Man, thank you so much, fam, for, for taking time to join us today. Uh, to begin, you know, we want to spend some time talking about your book and your work, but I always like to begin uh, giving our listeners an insight into our guests. And so could you talk a little bit uh, to us about your life um, and how you got to where you are and the work that you're doing? But I want you to think about it in terms of a movie trailer. So like, who are the people? Who are the institutions? What are the experiences that contributed to who you are and what you're doing today? Yes, brother. So um, uh from Michigan, I consider myself a Detroiter. I was actually born in Ann Arbor. My parents moved to Detroit to work in education when I was like two years old. And then by the time I was 10, we kind of left uh, because of th- some things that were happening in Detroit and tried to get to Southfield and found many of the same things. So <laughs> we ended up going to, uh, moving to Romulus. So I graduated high school in Romulus. Uh, my parents were educators, and they had a huge influence uh, in my life. A lot of the people that uh, reached out to me early and found potential in me were educators. So education is key. So that's that's why I ended up becoming a teacher. That's part of it. And then studying education, because while some of those folks, my parents, uh, a couple of key teachers, uh, scholars reached down and found me, um, many, many of my cousins and my brothers didn't have those kind of influences or they didn't impact them like that. So they were largely dehumanized in school and in their lives after school. And so education became something very interesting to me because I saw it as, as a way to uh, change lives and, and contribute to community and personal liberation of, of people I care about, which are black, indigenous and other minoritized people. So uh, that's kind of why I study education. That's kind of why I do what I do. Uh, even uh, so I was a teacher in Detroit for, for many years and then I became an administrator in Detroit. And then when I got my when I got my Ph.D., uh, well, when I was a, when I was a teacher, there were a number of things I could not answer, you know, that I would see I would encounter in the classroom or in the school. Uh, whether it be parents not showing up for their students. And I didn't understand why these communities didn't trust on the east side of Detroit, didn't trust educators like here I am new. But I didn't understand the histories of, of, about uh, between those schools and communities. And then uh, there were things within the school I didn't understand as well. You know, like why we had such a long suspension list and why we had such rigid pacing charts. And I'm just like, you know, how, how is this you, how is this education useful? Um, and, you know, so I had to kind of reshift how I was doing things in the school. You know, I would uh, assign a, a lot of homework because I had to try to keep up with those pacing charts. And after my first year, I'm like, they're not doing this homework. Let me try. Let me try something else. And so I focused on relationships with the young homies and the young heads in the classroom and in, around, in and around the classroom. And that was transformational. When I showed up at the cribs. After school, that was transformational. That's all I needed to do for classroom management. They deeply cared about their kids. It was just that the relationship had been constructed to just serve what schools wanted out of the relationship and not what community. It just took me a while to figure that out. And so that followed me into my research. And then 
So uh, another instrumental person, uh, and I, I don't want to be long-winded, but was uh, I'll say this was Judy Austin, uh, because I, had, I, as I told you, I was planning to become a superintendent, and I had three interviews out early in my graduating year with my PhD, and none of them panned out. So I was left out without a job, and then at the last minute, uh, Ashland University posted a position, and Judy was like. I'm, I'm gonna advocate for you, so I, I was able to get hired there, and that was, that was the beginning of my professorial journey. I'm curious, you know, given all of your experiences, you know, teaching, being an administrator, your parents being educators, I'm curious how your your background, your experiences, inform your work to do like transformative, revolutionary work particularly in how you prepare district and school leaders, one, but then two, just man, like this broader pursuit for like black liberation. Like how do your experiences inform your approach to your work? Oh uh, yeah. So I, I came, my, my parents were members of the nation of Islam before it disbanded in 1975. And then when it started back up in 1978, they did not rejoin. They stayed with the broader, just like Orthodox, you know, community of Muslims. And, uh, what, what, what Professor Sherman Jackson would argue is that regardless of its black Christianity, black Islam, black Judaism, you know, that some of the Hebrew brothers, that uh, the shell is like a religion. But what's at the core, the yolk of the egg, so to speak, is liberation theology. And in the uh, words of James Cone and some other people who write about that black liberation theology. And so my parents kind of came out of that. So I, I grew up with Jawanza Kajufu books. I didn't discover him as an adult. I grew up with Ivan Van Sertema and all of these other books, Chancellor Williams in the house. Uh, and um, I didn't understand a lot of it, but I was exposed early to whatever we end up doing with our lives. We have to find a way to, to be a part, to build that community and kind of give back to that. So it was deeply embedded. I'm not uh, sure at what moment I, I, I started to see it that way, but from very early on, definitely pre PhD, which is ironic. And this just shows you how 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 this is this is why I ended up studying organizational theory and system change and stuff like that because I came from a family like that. Ended up teaching on the east side of Detroit at Cleveland Middle School at my as my first school. I ended up teaching at like five or six different Detroit schools. Um, but nonetheless, I went to I come from a family like this. I was involved. I was socially active on campus and stuff like that. And then I, I get there and, and then the, the, the deficit theory that black Detroiters have about themselves and about immigrants is so strong and so palpable that even I began to repeat some of that garbage that some some of the because I didn't know the histories. I didn't know. And it was easy. Like nobody showed up for parent teacher conferences. Nobody was doing their homework. Nobody. I mean, most parents, when they came in, they were like suspicious, if not a bit agitated already. So it was just like it was it was a little bit easier for me to accept because I didn't have other language or uh, other understanding that could explain what was happening. So um, what I'm trying to say is that it, it started early for me. It came from my family. It came from the community that they exposed me to. Um, you know, and then the, it was in the music uh, that we listened to. Early hip hop was very, very liberation oriented until the industry was co-opted and then it became something different. Um, and so that was deeply, I mean, X-Clan was what it was. P.E. was what it was. And so the, the music and then around the, that time, Farrakhan became popularized as well. Um, you know, uh, and, and other black leaders, I think uh, movies, some critical movies came out. <laughs> at that time. So all of those things kind of contributed to it, man. Thank you for sharing that. I want to now uh, transition a little bit to talk about your research and scholarship, you know, so um, I know you have a very popular book and you are preparing and working with district and school leaders all across the country. Uh, but you're also a prolific scholar and researcher. And some of your initial work was around this renewed understanding of like how building principles, they weren't just focused on what was happening inside of the school, but they were deeply, deeply committed to like these broader, larger community issues. And they were community leaders and it's been very impactful for my own work. But my question I want to have, I want to ask you is, 
what would you say to leadership teams that uh, want to engage in like broader community based leadership? However, given the dynamics of gentrification, school choice, the school may not directly service the neighborhood in which it's located. And so you may have families showing up from 40 or 50 different zip codes, right? And so I guess how would you, what would be your suggestions for them in thinking about how to do community-based leadership in a school that may not directly serve the kids who live around that neighborhood? Yeah, it's interesting because I was talking to um, Peel County District and a couple of the school boards up in Toronto just yesterday, and the same exact question came up. And it just means that you have to do more work. You 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 still have kids in the school that have issues and that have concerns and that have life circumstances that need your attention. Regardless, if you sign up for a school like that, then you just got more neighborhoods and more homies to visit outside of school. It's not it's not we can't remove that from the job because to do that would make schools an extension of coloniality and a colonial model of education by which you're there in a one-sided relationship, but none, none of us would stay in a relationship like that. None of us would stay in a marriage like that. If you if you were in a marriage in which it's completely on one person's terms, if you have a problem, when you have a problem, how to talk about it, or if not to talk about it, how to solve it, when it's completed, when it's been addressed, was all predicated on what one person thought and the other person had no, I mean, none of us would stay in a relationship like that. So I can't, I, I, you know, there's no excuse. I don't care how many uh, zip codes you have to show, this has to be a central core part of your job. And if that means that you have to free up some money uh, to have more community advocacy workers on your team, then that's what that means. If that means that you need to free up some money to have a co-principal leading the building, then that's what that means. Whatever it means, whatever you need in order to get this crucial aspect of it done in order to not to represent a colonial institution in which you are uh, almost like either um, exploiting the community because resources are coming in uh, to pay you and your folk, uh, or uh, if you're just ignoring and being very, very dismissive toward the community, either one is very problematic. Either interpretation is very problematic, but it can't be any other interpretation but that. And all of the, all of the, uh, you know, conversation about, you know, well, uh, that's not within the mandate. That's not within the law. That's not within the policy. You know, I, I don't even engage that kind of talk anymore. That's good, bro. You know, I have been trying to get people to think um, beyond place-based and space-based, right? So place-based is a, a lat long, a geographical, but space has no bounds, right? And so how do you think about engaging in community based leadership from a spatial perspective, it relinquishes those boundaries that colonialism, that positivism has set up that like there are these demarcations that separate school and community. But I hear you totally not engaging with that that anymore, bro. I love sure. that. I love that. That's, that's, that's beautiful. Space based. That's actually that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And, and the thing is, is that in order to establish this kind of relationship, See, not not all of those communities are going to have something popping off every day. You know, it might be that the air is particularly bad on a smoggy day for one community that you're dealing with them that day. But you need to uh, one way to think about it is just con contributing resources. If it's got to be you, then you need to contribute resources for folks in the building to cover when you're gone. If it's going to be other people and you then you need to contribute resources to bring in those community workers and advocates there into your school. And I don't, I don't mean liaisons necessarily because I've seen them used in both ways. And usually how schools hope to use liaisons and, and community, uh, what do they call them? Community uh, curriculum workers or something. I've seen different names used is translate to the community what we hope to have for you. But when are you going to ask what the community wants out of the school for the for the communities and for their families? When does that question come up? And it never does. And I've asked leaders across the country, have they asked that question of their communities? And none of them have. I mean, thousands, literally, and not not hardly one have ever asked their community that question. What do you want out of our school for you and for your self-determination, for your community and for your students? It ne they never ask that because it doesn't matter, according to them, because they have their policies. Mm -hmm. I want to get into this book because I think you're starting to hit on. I mean, because 
to ask that question is to reorient the relationships of power, right? Because now I'm asking, what is it that collectively you want for this space? And so that's powerful. And I know you get into that in the book. So I want to transition over to that. But you wrote a phenomenal book, Culturally Responsive School Leadership, uh, published by Harvard Ed Press. Uh, And for the folks who are listening, I want to deeply, deeply and highly encourage you to go out and get this book. It's a powerful book. I use it in my teaching and my courses. And so I first want to thank you, my brother, for your labor to um, write such a powerful book that's not only theoretically rich, but it's powerfully practical. Right. I think sometimes it's difficult for practitioners to engage some of our work, but you do a beautiful job in the book that you wrote. So I, I want to thank you for that first and foremost. Thank you. man. For sure. For sure. Um, my first question is this. And not to be too foundational, but I want folks to be able to enter into this conversation with us. But could you talk a little bit about um, what is culturally responsive school leadership? And the reason I ask you that, because terms like culturally responsive school leadership, anti-racism, equity, they become empty signifiers. They're everything and they're no thing all at the same time. So could you talk a little bit about what it is, but how it differs from like these traditional common approaches to leadership and the assumptions that they make and, and the ways in which they go about their work. How would you, you know, make, make, make meaning of culturally responsive school leadership? Well, I, I can talk about it with you a little bit differently than I, I have in the past. Most, most, most forms of leadership is what scholars would call technical rational. And it is, um, you know, just based on some policies that uh, education uh, educationalists have written. And so then you're extractive and you're uh, one-sided, you're hierarchical with the people who are receiving education. It's all uh, unidirectional. Um, and so culturally responsive school leadership um, is, a, is a form of leadership that hopes to uh, reshift power, as you were saying. It hopes to not just be technical, rational, but it hopes to kind of engage what people need at that particular time. So other types of leadership have emerged also, transformative leadership, anti-racist leadership, equity-based leadership. I see culturally responsive school leadership as a, a little bit different from that, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But first, what is it? So uh, I did a lit review with my good friends, my homies, uh, Dr. Mark Gooden and Dr. James Davis, and we did a lit review, and we uh, we tried to find... Uh, all of the ways that people described leadership that responds to the cultures and the, and the um, experiential needs of their students. So we found that there were there were four essential um, uh, buckets here of that that scholars have been written because it was a lit review published in Review of Education and Research. It was the highest ranked journal, education journal. So for them to publish something like this, to me, indicated that the field was shifting. But anyway, we found that critical self-reflection was necessary, right? In other words, you constantly asking yourself, how is it that I am either arresting and confronting oppressive trends in the school, or how am I, uh, you know, identifying it, or how am I, or how am I reproducing it? and not identifying it and just like being dismissive about it. So that's like the first bucket. Now, culturally responsive, uh, I'm sorry, critical self-reflection, this first bucket requires you not just to ask the interpersonal questions. This is a problem with how people approach uh, equity work. It's just like my personal journey. It's like my racial autobiography or it's, it's microaggressive racism, which all of these things need to be talked about, of course. But how do you lead a staff? How do you institute systemic change? So that's in the first bucket. The second bucket is uh, in in our article. I broke up into two chapters in the book, but in the article, uh, the second bucket deals with student identity and the the extent to which school climates uh, sort of accept those schools' identities or not. And and are they exclusionary toward those identities? And so we we get into community. We get into uh, community-based identities. We get into all of that. And how these exclusionary practices look. So these uh, these these exclusionary practices often are only thought of as suspension, in school suspension or expulsion. But in the book, we started we start talking about other cultural things that may not be represented in your data, but they still cause students to disengage and eventually leave school. And so 
those kind of things might be tokenization, exoticizing students, appropriating their knowledge, and then exoticizing it, stuff like that. So we get into some of that kind of stuff. Then the third bucket would be community engagement. And how do you approach a community? How do you do it without uh, sort of like exoticizing them and without uh, taking their knowledge and using it? Like, for example, restorative justice is an indigenous practice. Most people don't know anything about um, how it was developed, how it was formed, the nuances around it. So for you just to go into an indigenous space and take a practice and begin to practice in a very white way, that's a type of appropriation, which is horrible. Um, and so how do you, when you establish relationships with the community, how do you do it in a way that is sensitive to how they see the world, to their epistemologies and to their sensibilities? Then the four, the fourth type is the, the whole instructional leadership bucket. So these are the four buckets. The instructional leadership bucket is asking, how can you be an instructional leader, but from a culturally responsive perspective? Like, how can you recruit teachers? How can you develop them? How can you observe them? All of these things that instructional leaders think that they need to do, professional learning. How, how can you do that paying attention to the needs of, you know, uh, the students that you have? So th these are some of the main um you know, components of culturally responsive school leadership. And I do see it quite different from uh, some of the other types of leadership there. Other types of leadership uh, that are critical miss something in, in most instances that I see. And so what that is, is that like, for example, anti-racist leadership. So this question came up yesterday when I was talking to some folks uh, up in Canada. And I, I, I'm it. it to, to critique systems of oppression, practices of oppression, programmatic pro uh, uh, data that's oppressive is a part of culturally responsive. Absolutely. You must do that as a leader, as a culturally responsive leader. The problem is, is that white people are able to stop there because they do not have another vision for the communities they serve. So they stop at critiquing oppression. When you when I, I go to Detroit, I see things that many whites who don't live in Detroit or who are not from Detroit can't see. And you, too. When I go into certain spaces, I can I can understand the long term vision, the goals, assets. So culturally responsive school leadership doesn't only critique systemic practices and behaviors of leaders, but it also, in my view, reaches further and looks to excavate and looks to identify assets, looks to bring in experiential knowledge or cultural knowledge, community based knowledge, um, Decolonial knowledge. I mean, there are many terms to suggest that there's there's some richness, there's some beauty, there's knowledge. There are all of these things in, that live in the embodied nature intergenerationally with the people that are served that is not making it into schools. And part of your mandate as a culturally responsive leader is to, yes, critique the fact that that's not in schools and then go find it. And many times the, the more difficult thing to do is to go to set because it, it you know you have to invest like I was saying earlier you know you can't just show up and, and then think that you'll find what you need in communities you they have to trust you or else they'll tell you what they think you want to hear you have to be embedded in that space you have to be able to see the assets that are there that you can't see and then bring that to policy curriculum practice pedagogy instruction every every aspect of schooling has to reflect that so that you can see why that's more difficult, because first it takes you time to establish trust. Then you need to be able to start seeing uh, ethnographically or whatever what, what's there. And then you need to find out how to bring that into the process of schooling. So you can see why that's way more uh, difficult and more involved than simply reading the latest book or article by Terrence Green or Muhammad Khalifa. And then, you know, not telling your colleagues about it, then sneaking up on them and sneaking them. You know what I'm saying? Like, aha, you, you know, you, you, you ain't nothing but an oppressor. Oh, that's easy to do. <laughs> you know? And that's that's like, that's kind of like how a lot of educator uh, folks do it. They come and take a class with one of us or they get a hold of like, you know, Goldie Muhammad or Lisa Delpit or something. And they sneak in everybody at work, you know. That is so much in there. That's powerful. I mean, a couple of things. One is I, I, I think by and large. Our field has failed on the building component, right? Like we know how to critique, we know how to deconstruct, we know how to see what's wrong, but that has to be connected to a reconstructive analysis. And when it's not, it becomes 
a Eurocentric exercise because you're just deconstructing, but you're not reconstructing anything. And so I love, love, love the way you augment the, the reconstructive piece with the deconstruction component and critique. My, my question for you, and you, you mentioned it in here, and you mentioned it in, in a conversation we had or a text or something, but you said something that was profound, and I've been thinking about it since you said it, but you said something to the extent of, like, it's difficult to be anti-racist, but not decolonial or anti-colonial. And, and man, that's a, a powerful, that's powerful. And I would love if you could talk a little bit about what you mean by that. And also, like, how might people working in schools take up a, a decolonial type of a leadership, but not in a extractive way, but in like real authentic, genuine ways? I, I appreciate the question, man. Uh, I think I might remember remember that text. Uh, and the reason why is because most why why are you critical as a, as an education scholar? Why are you critical? For what purpose are you critical? So the colonial question forces you to ask that because. All of the people that many of the many of the you know Foucault, a lot of the European critical um, theorists over time, they weren't trying. To, they were not uh, many of them radically changing European dominance. They were critiquing some part of it. A lot of times when I see people exercising in critique, uh, they just want more of the system. They don't want to fundamentally shift the system. They just want more of it for themselves. That's a big difference, you know, uh, and so. Um, People who show up and who are anti-racist but not anti-colonial are saying, look, I don't like the way white folks are treating me here, but I don't have a problem with European dominance and Western uh, dominance of the entire world. So, so it becomes a very selfish, in some ways, a very selfish uh, perspective. And I, I found that people are not doing this uh, you know, out of malice. They, they really just are ignorant to the fact that uh, th- that this colonial empire, so that the French supposedly left Gabon and Senegal and Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, the English left Nigeria, Kenya, Tanzania, but th- the people who came here never left. They're still here. This is still a colonial existence. I don't care. I mean, a hundred, a thousand or 10,000 years won't change that per se. And so um, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of getting off character now, but the way that people can, uh, leaders in schools can begin to come to terms with this is like you and I write in our research, they have to come to terms with the community, man. That that's the missing element with schools. We've tried everything else. Nothing else is changing. All of the other stuff that we've been doing with leaders have not changed the trajectory of black, brown and indigenous people in American schools. We've been trying critical. We've been trying anti-racist. We've been trying social justice, transformative stuff for like 20, 25 years. I haven't seen it wholesale change, anything. The only th- the, the thing that has not been tried is for us to study. What would it mean to have leaders from the community lead schools? What would that look like? Or co-lead schools? What would it mean for teachers to be? So we're, we're trying to launch a nonprofit now. I, I, we, I know that we're not talking about it now, but what, what it calls for is for leaders. Uh, for, it's, it's for, it's for, te- it's for, okay. Initially what it calls for is for teachers to, to learn how to be community workers and commit to communities before they ever step into any classroom. For years, for two, three years in undergrad, while they're getting their teacher degree, all of that, studying the community. And then what it will call for is for leaders to allow those teachers to remain in communities 10% of their instructional time. So instead of having one prep a day, having maybe two preps a day so that they can't be so they can be out of the schools. Now, we have this set up already for school. See, this is going to sound weird to people on the call. But what many people don't know is we already have it set up, but for business. So neocolonial uh, and capitalistic projects, it's OK. And so if, why not for community based projects? So there are business models like this all around where, you, you know, teachers have an extra prep because they have to go set up relationships with the communities or something else, whatever, if they're coach, whatever. But why not for community? Why not for community empowerment? Like, why is it always that every time community heads and community bodies step up and say, look, we need this extra resource in order for our humanity to be completed, then it's always an, it's always this, well, it's always this kind of like pushback about why why that can't happen. And we're, we're tired of that. We always experience that. 
as folks in, in neighborhoods, like, you know, it's always a reason why whenever we need freedom, why it can't happen. And it does happen and it's happening for the business and all of these other courses. And so I think that the ways for leaders to do it. Uh, and, and let me say one more thing, one more type of pushback. The biggest pushback I've heard about why leaders don't want to do this is because they're fearful that they'll lose their jobs. That's the biggest they, they can't say anything to what you're bringing to them and what the what the folks in education are saying that like this is needed. They can't respond to that. So now it's just a thing of lacking courage. Now you don't have courage. Now you're afraid you're going to lose your job. So you're not going to do what's right. And all of that has to be kind of stepped aside. Uh, we we've, another. So, so in other words, go hard, go for the community, put your people in the community, put yourself in the community, learn from them, advocate for what's in the community, regardless of if it's education related or not, whatever the issue is, whatever, if ICE, like I've been to districts across the country, ICE is descending upon districts, arresting parents, sometimes even on school grounds. Principals are silent. How you, somebody's parent got arrested for bringing them to school and you don't have anything to say and you're the leader of that school? Like this is like almost impossible to fathom that leaders could possibly think that this is okay, but that's exactly what happened. They didn't say anything about it. Uh, arrest, uh, ex- uh, accelerated arrest rates of you know police targeting certain communities. Like, what did the principals in Ferguson, Missouri, have to say? What did the principals uh, in Minneapolis have to say after after last year's murder? You know, why aren't they vocal? Not just show up in the audience and see one or two students and kind of no, 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 no. You know, so um. So that, that's the way to do it, man. Just engage the community on the community's terms. Advocate for the community in terms of what the community needs advocacy for. Don't usurp the spotlight. Don't misinterpret me. You don't need to be a leader for the community per se. Let them lead, but support them. And if they need you to advocate in the circles you can advocate, then that's where you advocate at. Man, that's rich. That's so rich. That's so good. Um you mentioned a couple of things in there um, and you mentioned in the book too. Uh, early in the book, you talk about uh, settler colonialism. You talk about the enslavement of black people. You talk about the ways in which um, oppression is not only a historical construct, but it's a modern day reality in schools. And I know someplace you talk about this idea of successive oppression. Could you talk a little bit about the ways in which oppression shows up in schools today, particularly for black students, for indigenous students, for other racially minoritized students? Because a lot of conversations I have with folks, they're like, well, all right, Dr. Green, I can see some inequities. But to say the school is oppressive. Oh, now, hold on now. We, we've read Dr. Khalifa's book. We've, you know what I mean? And so can you talk about the ways in which oppression continues to show up in schools today? Yes, I can. And, and I can also talk about the way that humanization shows up in school today, too. So not all schools do all things wrong. Some schools do find ways, subtle ways to humanize students as well. And I, so I, I do want to sh- shout out, you know, to the principals and to the educators that are making that happen. I don't want to wholesale slam everybody like nothing happens in schools except oppression. But oppressive practices definitely show up in school. And the way we talk about it in the academy and in the book is, is that a lot of schools are rushing to judgment. Um, uh, in terms of this this whole anti-bias work movement. And I have a problem with starting with anti-bias. Uh, if you have biases, those biases are resting upon repertoires of knowledge. They're resting. I mean, what something is informing the biases. And so we start in the academy we, and in the book, we start talking about some of those things that inform your biases. We've had biases and schools for a long time, I show up to some schools year after year after year. The biases don't shift. They've been doing anti-bias work. The biases aren't shifting because those biases are fixed on earlier types of understanding and knowledge. And so that's why we kind of dip into epistemology and stuff like that. But uh, look, the, the federal government requires several things. And I'm not talking politics here. I'm talking about whether it's a Republican or a Democrat in office. It doesn't matter. And they found consistently that black boys are suspended five times more than everybody else when it's objective for the subjective offenses like insubordination and aggressive behavior it could be 20 or 30 times more, man, that is a type of oppression. Uh, so then you say, Oh, well, we don't have that kind of data disparity and disproportionality in our district and our black and brown kids 
are performing at the same rate. Now, that doesn't happen, but let's say it does. Well, what did they have to give up in order for you to get your test score data, in order for you to get your... So they had to give up more than what your non-Black and Latino students and your non-Indigenous students had to give up. In order for them to succeed, even if all of your data is equitable and there's no disproportionate... There's some people who had to give up a large part of who they were in order to meet your data. So that's still inequity. And so, uh, you know, so, so I mean, it goes from shaming behaviors. It goes from uh, deal making in the classrooms. Like, look, if you sit back there and you don't give me any problems. Now, this has been widely reported in a lot of my research. Teachers have told me. And ethnographic data that, look, I just tell them, look, man, if you just sit in the back of the classroom, you don't bother me. I'll give you a C at the end. That's a That's an extreme form of bigotry. That's an extreme form of bigotry. So, I mean, it. what I'm calling attention to, Dr. Green, is that it, it, it the data suggests that oppression is everywhere. A- academically, uh, it's not just about class. It's about race. Everybody knows that. It's, a, it's dis- disciplinary. Uh, when you look at the gifted and talented numbers uh, in the enrichment courses, when you look at special education, all of this suggests that there are oppressive practices in buildings. But that's just the the, the uh, explicit data. But there are all of these other things that happen as well that schools don't have a good way of measuring or paying attention to unless they perform something like an equity audit or they have YPAR or they have uh, youth focus, regular youth focus groups as a way to inform uh, the school of what's happening. And I don't just mean going into getting your prize students. I mean, go get the homies that you've been suspending for the last five years. Go get the people that dropped out and put them as a part of this group as a way to bring them back to schools, perhaps. Um, and hear from them, hear from all people in the community about about you. We love as educators to think that we can deliver knowledge and not receive it and judge without being judged. And now let's get some judgment on you from the young homies that you say you serve and or their families and see what's up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, thinking about sources of data that are not the standard ways we collect information. Like you said, going talking to the homies, the cats that you keep suspending. But here's the thing about epistemology, like that knowledge typically does not count. You know what I mean? Like what they going to tell me? They've been suspended. They walking out the class. You know what I'm saying? So that 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 again goes back to what you're saying, like wrestling with these deep epistemological systems of knowledge, these deeply ingrained ways. And so, yeah, the question we have to ask is that like at what cost? You know what I'm saying? You got through this school system, but did it cost you your racial identity? Did it cost you who you were, your black brilliance? Did it cost you being precocious? You know what I mean? Like at what cost? And this is why we have to build because we got to stop asking that question at what cost. We have to have institutions that are structured such that is deeply embedded in it. And so this gets me to my next question, which you have mentioned towards the end of when I was asking the question, setting it up. You write about uh, these humanizing communities, right, in schools. and. I would love to hear you talk about like how might people go about fostering those conditions in schools that are deeply humanizing for black students, for indigenous students, for students who are racially minoritized. Yeah. So that's, 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 that's when you begin to systematize the knowledge that you got from the community. So once you get this knowledge and you begin to bring it into schools. And so uh, it starts of course, with rolling back the practices that are opposite to that. And then it starts to setting up spaces in schools that students tell you and that parents tell you that they need in order to exist there comfortably. And a lot of times it looks like affinity groups. A lot of times. Uh, so so I, I don't want to make it sound uh, that it's uh, all extracurricular because it's not. Humanizing students in schools involves checking your curriculums for white supremacy, checking your curriculums for coloniality, Checking your curriculum for 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 the representation, uh, the discourses that might be uh, conveying certain illicit and incorrect uh, knowledges about the students that you serve. All so you so a deep check of the curriculum, how you identify teachers, for example, uh, to be hired and to be observed, 
If you're using most of the frameworks out there, Daniels and Marzano, whatever, then if you want to make equity or culturally responsive uh, instruction optional as a part of that tool, you can, I guess maybe you can get it in there, but it's not required that you uh, look at teachers and the instructional staff from a perspective of cultural responsiveness. So that's a way to humanize schools when you get the right people in there. And it's not only about hiring more teachers of color. Yes, we do need to do that. But people say, oh, that they talk about that like a one and done. Like we, once, this problem we solve once we hire more teachers of color. And everybody knows that teachers and leaders of color can reproduce the same context that are oppressive. So that's why when a sociologist, you ask most sociologists, can, can blacks be racist? They'll tell you no. And they'll, they'll come up with the, you know, the train track theory of black people, white people, part of town, whatever. If you ask the white people, those black people don't like you. They're prejudiced against you. Does that impact your life conditions, your arrest rate, the ability to get food, all of that? Then the white people say, they don't like us, but that doesn't impact us. But if you go ask the black people, those white folks don't like you. Does that impact your life? And every last one of them would say, yes, that does impact everything about our lives. And so I agree with the sociological analysis can blacks be racist? But from an org theory perspective, when you put black or brown people at the head of institutions and they become reproductive agents of a bureaucratic of bureaucratic trends that are in that organization can done. So getting back to the question, which is what we were talking about, how we can humanize those spaces. It looks like curriculum. So all of the things that we do as educators, I'm not some the community learning will impact the, the administrative skills that we already have. Everybody who is going to be listening to this podcast is either already a leader or aspiring to be a leader. So they got some administrative skills already, but you have to have unlearning and relearning that reshapes the administrative skills that you have to address people who are invisible to you. So finding ways to visibilize those epistemologies from the community and school, finding ways to understand what they want for themselves and to have that represented in school, finding ways to look at the curriculum who you hire, finding ways to look at the program, the programmatic activities to make sure that that's representative. All of these kind of things contribute to that, bro. And there are many, many more things. So some, some, some schools might, I mean, you, you know, I, as, as one person, I can't just show up and say, Hey, you need to do A, B, C, and D. Once you talk to your students, they might say, look, we want to, we want to clean up our neighborhood. So that becomes something that becomes a priority of the school. You might talk to your students and they might say, um, you know, the police are harassing us out here. So that becomes a priority of your school. Or you might, so, so in other words, the lives, the embodied knowledge, experiential knowledge that the students have, their experiences, their desires, their goals. They might, somebody might tell you there are no jobs for us in the summertime. And when we graduate, there are no jobs. So that becomes a priority of the school. So whatever the community is telling you about what they need becomes a priority of your school. And it does not have to be school related. Bro, but see, here's the thing, Dr. Khalifa, is that that is curriculum. You know what I mean? So say we take the example, you want to clean up the schools. That's mathematics. That's science. That's these are his. This is history. Why? is You know what I mean? Like there is your curriculum right there. There are no jobs. Oh, my God. Do you know the way we can engage in, in, in pedagogy to address that? And so these are not like mutually exclusive worlds, these are deeply and intimately connected realities that that what you're hitting on is, is, is just so powerful and it's so profound. And you're talking about humanizing. I mean, it, 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 it does away with this separation between so-called school and so-called community because there's your curriculum right there. That's, that's absolutely right, brother. That's absolutely right. Yes, sir. You you mentioned something in there. Um, oh, yeah, man. You know, I've, in the book, I've been working on like this continuum. So I think, and you hit on it, like the representation piece. And so it's not enough to just add more black people to a system of white supremacy. You know what I mean? And, and that's essentially what you're getting at. That reproductive factor can happen. And so you got to move beyond that, although representation is important, down the continuum to redistribution. You know what I mean? Like you've got to redistribute the way in which the school functions materially, what you said epistemologically, 
instructionally, the relationships with power, that's when you get at, to me, the more fruitful things. But yeah, it is not enough to just add more people to a system that's based on exploitation, <laughs> white supremacy, whiteness. That, yeah, that's why I talk about successful oppression so much, man, because what, what we do in the academy and what I try to highlight in the book is that there's a thought process. They're, they're connected discourses that cause us as educators to act in a particular way. What are earlier practices that exist in American history, uh, you know, that also is a similar discourse that we're driving those practices as well? Because when you start to interrogate at that kind of historical level, it, it, it kind of gets away from just the the the. the uh, I don't want to disparage anti-bias work, but I have been describing it as lazy, um, but, but but as the um, less developed, I'd say, or, or the shortcut <laughs> uh, anti-bias work that's out there. So these are the kind of things that can have you situate thinking discourses, where these deficit discourses came from, how people are seen, how the humanity is seen or not seen, why, why discourse allows you to see things that are not there which is how, how they destroyed Black Bottom and Paradise Valley and other cities around the country, claiming that they were crime in these neighborhoods. They were unruly, seeing things that were not there. But also, these discourses blind you from things that are. So you say, hey, I'm a teacher. I don't know how to raise, I don't know how to get culturally responsive curriculum. And if W.E.B. Du Bois were in your room, you would miss that too. Mm. Because you couldn't see the assets and the genius. Wow. Right? Wow. You, it's invisible to you. These discourses not only cause you to see things that are not there, but they cause you to miss things that are there. And so you're up in the schools claiming, claiming you don't have access to culturally responsive curriculum with 30 uh, geniuses in your classroom and their parents, and you haven't had access, wow. and you can't seem to make it happen. Wow. <laughs> That's powerful. Awesome. awesome. My last question for our quick rapid questions are, I know you do a culturally responsive leaders institute, and uh, some of my students have been a part of some of the webinars you've done and they've had amazing experiences. And I know folks listening here, their leadership teams may be deeply interested in this. Could you talk very briefly about uh, what happens in the institutes um, and how folks can learn more about it? Yeah, thankfully, man, the institutes have been blowing up, uh, talking to cities across the country, performed a bunch this summer, Michigan, Oregon, Minneapolis. So uh, it's really growing rapidly, man. And what we do is we sit with leaders for, for, for 2.5 days. We read the book and about like 10 other articles. Um, they bring data from the district. They bring tools from the district, language, annual plans, like visions and goals. They bring uh, dis discouraging things and uh, policies, and they just go deep learning with other leaders. It's not, it's not a train-the-trainer model. This is a time for leaders to learn about themselves, about their schools, histories, all of that. And then they walk away with practices, not in the way that, look, here, here's a tool, go use that. No, here's a tool. Look at your tool. Look at what we've given you, critique, put in conversation and come up with something better that can humanize these babies in school. And so it is It, it is a deep learning experience. Uh, oftentimes, as many as seven districts have been in the room, but usually it's like... Uh, you know, two, three districts, everybody from the superintendent all the way down to teacher leaders just kind of develop in this framework to become a culturally responsive leader. So it's been profound. Uh, and we would love to, you know, bring one down to Texas or any anywhere that folks want to want to uh, get one of these academies and have this deep learning. Um, we, we're down to do it, man. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, my brother. Uh, we like to close out our podcast by asking our guests just a few quick uh, questions. So just the first response that comes up. Uh, you know, let us know. You ready? Yes, sir. All right. So what if there was a film created about your life, a feature-length film? Who would you want to star as you and why? Uh, my One of my sons, because his personality is like mine. <laughs> it's powerful. Um, my next question is, if you were not a professor or researcher, uh, you know, working in schools, if you're working in a completely different industry, what would you be doing and why? I would probably be. Uh, so 
probably working in another country in some sort of service, maybe small business or hotel or bed and breakfast, because I love travel. I love being here in a way. And that's the kind of job that would let me set up and kind of keep traveling. Awesome. Awesome. Last two questions. The next one is, if you could become an expert in anything instantly, what would it be and why? Uh, it would it would be an expert in investments because we need to become financially independent as a people. Mm-hmm. And my final question is like, where or what constitutes you know your happy place or places? What makes up that for you? I, I'm going to contradict myself because I just said I love to travel and I do, but I just love being at home. I don't know if it's a pandemic play or what, but just being at the crib is my is my comfort zone, man. So. <laughs> that, is, that is awesome, Dr. Khalifa. And if folks want to get in contact with you, where could they follow up and learn more about your work? Uh, School Equity Pro, at School Equity Pro with Twitter, uh, Dr. Khalifa at adjusted.org. You could e- email me at my OSU email too. Um, that's Khalifa.20 at OSU.edu. Awesome, awesome. Or, or visit us online, crsli.org. Stands for the Culturally Responsive School Leadership Institute.org. Well, thank you, my brother. I, I deeply, deeply, deeply appreciate you taking time out to uh, come on the broadcast, the, the podcast. And uh, thank you, my brother. Absolutely. Thank you for the invitation. I've had. I've had a great time, man. Well, that is it, folks. Thank you so much for joining the Just Schools podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and I am so excited and really looking forward to our time together during future podcasts. What I need you to do is to please hit the subscribe button, share with a friend and please leave a review. We love reviews. And if you want to hear more from me, you can head on over to www.raciallyjustschools.com. That is www.raciallyjustschools.com. When you join our community, I have a free video for you on three tips that will make your racial justice work better. And again, if you love the show, hit subscribe, rate it, and leave a review on iTunes. And until next time, peace.